morning everybody we may start uh, quite a bit to get through not least because you've uh, got four singers this morning on the stage uh, welcome to our data protection update uh, for 2012 a couple of housekeeping points before we move into the, the content um, this is the most recent of our CCFs. The next is a couple of weeks' time. We seem to be cranking up the pace. I'm not sure if we're avoiding the bank holiday season or not, but um, for those of you who are involved in outsourcing deals, the next session is in a fortnight um, on benchmarking. Um, following that, a month later, we have a, the next in our series of HR forums, uh, our ever-popular annual employment law update. Um, uh, for those of you who were at the last employment law session, uh, I'm not sure that there's going to be video at this one. Um, but there may be more comedy sketches. Um, if either of those are of interest, they can be booked on our website or do email through the, the email address here. Um, we will also be coming out with our spring and summer um, CCF shortly, but if you have any requests for topics, um, there will be feedback emails coming out after the session. Do feedback in there or indeed um, pop an email into the events email address. Both are great ways of letting us know what's of interest to you. So. Moving on to today's session, uh, data protection, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's possibly a little bit of a harsh evaluation, or indeed it may be a little bit early, uh, to make that evaluation of the, the data protection framework that was announced by the Commission in January, but we are certainly uh, looking at a lot of change in those proposals. This morning we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the, the key areas of change in that proposed EU legislation. As I mentioned, um, there's a cast of many from us today, so Chris Hill will be looking at corporate obligations, Rich um, Fulsome at Jurisdiction Consumer Peace will then break for coffee, coming back to a, a think about things um, specific to organisations and hopefully in all of this taking a look at the impact on business. Um, we'll then finish with some parting thoughts I think on where we are and, and what businesses might be thinking about as these changes start to roll. Before jumping into all that content, I thought it might be useful just to spend a moment thinking about the context for changes and, and what's kind of got us to the point where we are. I think there have been two main drivers fueling the, the, the need for change at a European level. The first is a kind of overriding sense that, that the current data protection laws just aren't fit for purpose. Um, we have the directive that we got in 1995, which became our Data Protection Act in 98. And if you think that it's sort of 15, 18 uh, years ago, um, those laws were set in a context where really only big coal and government had the, the ability to manipulate vast amounts of data, um, control that data, do things with it. I think if you compare that to where we are now in our kind of always on and always tracked world, um, we have seen real change, and that's primarily, I think, through the technological processes that have ha progresses that have happened in between. Again, those dates, 95 and 98, um, I do a lot of work in e-commerce. If I think about that in that context, 95 was when Amazon and eBay launched. 98 was when Google launched. Um, if you had a PC on your desk at that point, it probably covered your desk. If you had a phone, it certainly wasn't smart. Um, a tablet was something that gave you rotten teeth. Uh, you know, we have had a huge change in that time. Those two drivers fueling concern at a European level, I think to have some response, um, and we've seen the responses characterised in two ways. Firstly, there's a kind of overriding sort of sense of having a need to protect citizens, particularly, as I mentioned, in this kind of always-on, always-tracked world. But coming through almost as strongly um, has been a real need to strengthen Europe's digital economy. There's quotes here from Vivian Redding and from the Commission uh, that came out at the time that the framework um, was released uh, in January. Um, as you can see, what they're looking at then is not entirely altruistic. What we're thinking about here is something that will be hopefully a boost to Europe and to business in Europe. So that's sort of the context. How are we getting there? Well, currently we have a directive. Um, and as you're all probably aware, if you've had to do anything on a European-wide level, that gave you ice cream, but it gave you 27 flavours of ice cream. What's now proposed is a regulation, and again, taking ourselves back to university. That's a piece of legislation which has direct effect across all member states when brought in. Um, the idea here being that we'll have some kind of harmonised law, one law for Europe, and everybody will work in the same way. Um, it's a nice idea. Uh, it's being sold to us in the concept of a lot of cost savings and as you see when we get into some of the detail in the regulation 
the ability to talk to one regulator for all of Europe. Um, I think some of the hidden impacts, certainly from a UK perspective, are that we will have to fall in line with regulatory standards which are possibly tighter and higher than we're used to. The Commissioner in the UK has always been uh, one of the more freer thinkers of the data protection regulators, so change will come to us in that way. So when we think about one law, um, one law to rule them all, all sounds a bit uh, Tolkienish. Um, I think we should also bear in mind that within what's proposed in the regulation, areas have been specifically reserved for the Commission. So the regulation will not be the only piece of legislation when this change happens. That's evident from uh, the proposal which also suggests the framework will have a directive for use of personal data in criminal justice matters. So already we're having one law, but actually it's two. Uh, and within the regulation itself, as I think we'll see this morning, there are pockets of uh, regulation which are kept for national government. So immediately the one law is being diluted. Um, let's get into some of the detail on what's in that one law. I'll pass you over to Chris. Thanks. Morning. As Karen says, I'm going to be focusing on the um, corporate obligations. The new draft regulation seeks to introduce a, a great many changes in the way that um, organisations and businesses deal with personal data. And we're focusing on these four particular areas, um, principally because these are the ones that seem to have raised the most eyebrows in terms of their potential impact on businesses. We're going to look first at uh, mandatory notification of data breaches. Now, these um, notifications fall into these two categories, so notifications to the authorities um, and to, to individuals, to data subjects. One of the chief issues um, that's been raised, one of the chief concerns, um, is over the timing of the notifications. Article 31 sets out that um, controllers have to notify the authorities without undue delay and in any case within 24 hours of discovery of a breach. If they can't notify within that very short time period, then they have to provide with the notification a reason justification, whatever that means. There's also a separate obligation on processes to notify controllers immediately, presumably so that the whole process doesn't get slowed down by the involvement of a third-party processor. So knowing that you have to notify very quickly, what is it that you have to notify? Well, you can see here a, a list of the sort of prescribed elements of any notification, and it's pretty extensive. It doesn't just go into um, what data has been breached and some contact details. It also goes into measures that a controller would recommend um, that data subjects themselves take in order to mitigate the effects of a breach, um, as well as the, the measures that the controller itself has taken. There's a separate obligation on controllers to document and keep detailed records of, of all breaches and all remedial actions that have been taken so that they can evidence their compliance with the regulation to um, the supervisory authorities. So again, you know you've got to notify quickly you know, you've got to notify in really some level of detail that would presumably take quite a long time to put together. Um, but what type of what type of breach is it that will trigger this notification? And this, um, as Cal mentioned, is, is one of those areas where um, the Commission's basically ducked the answer for the time being. They've given themselves the power to, to set out the particular circumstances at a later date. Now, this is slightly problematic in the draft itself. There's a bit of a contradiction. Because the opening gambit of, of Article 31 is um, in the case of a data breach which suggests any data breach. And it can't be either any data breach or particular data breach. It's got to be one or the other. It's not clear how this will play out then. The recitals to the, the regulation do cite economic loss and social harm, but only really mentions them. Um, in the absence of any specific rules, um, the implication seems to be that all breaches must be notified and the supervisory authority will then assess the materiality. The materiality is, is uh, amongst other things, something that the ICO, the, the UK's guardian of data protection, um, has objected to. Um, bearing in mind that the ICO has been arguing for mandatory notification of breaches for, for some years, even they have raised concerns that without any element of materiality and proportionality, um, they and other supervisory authorities will be swamped with notifications of really trivial um, personal data breaches. They've also said that the 24-hour stipulation is, is unnecessary and a much simpler requirement to notify with undue delay would be perfectly sufficient. That is not where the notification obligations stop. 
there's also the separate um, obligation to notify data subjects. Now, this one is conditioned. It's, it's only triggered where there's a breach that's likely to uh, adversely affect the protection of personal data or the privacy of data subjects. There is a get-out if the data that's been lost is unintelligible, which effectively means it's, it's been heavily encrypted. But if you are caught by this, by this obligation, then the notification that you have to give is just as detailed um, to data subjects as the one that you've had to give to the authority. There's also this slightly uh, odd aspect that you're only obliged to notify the data subject after you've notified the authority. And it, I, ICO has objected to this. The, one of the other aspects that the ICO has objected to is um, the, the triggers themselves. Um, and they said that financial loss, embarrassment, and, uh, and other negative effects should be counted uh, within the mechanism for, for the notification to be triggered. Um, again, this is something where the control, uh, where, where the Commission can come back later on and specify particular circumstances in which um, notifications have to be made, and hopefully that will intru introduce some level of clarity. Um, in summary, on this part, though, that the, the draft seems to introduce um, the concepts that the breach notifications have to be very quick and they have to be very extensive. But the fact is that the full extent of these obligations is, is, hasn't been welcomed by everyone in open, uh, with open arms in the full level of detail, um, and even by the supervisory authority themselves, and there's still a great deal of, of unclarity about this. Moving on to fines. Um, Article 79 sets out um, the fines as well as various other administrative sanctions. There are three categories of fines that, that are determined according to the types of breach. Um, how big the fine is within that particular uh, category uh, set by these five uh, criteria, all of which are sort of fairly common sense. We'll just take a look briefly at what the different categories are and, and what types of breach trigger them. So the first category is up to €250,000 or 0.5% of annual worldwide turnover. And these are triggered by breaches as relatively trivial as failures to comply quickly and efficiently with requests from data subjects for access to or replication of their personal data. So uh, in current terms, not dealing very well with, with subject access requests. Second category um, fines are doubled up to 1% of annual turnover. Um, and here we're looking at failures to comply fully, transparently, or at all with requests for information on the processing and mechanisms around the processing of personal data. So that's going beyond you ju just you didn't notify particularly quickly or efficiently. It's that you didn't do it properly or you didn't do it at all. They also apply where um, a business hasn't got its house in order in, in respect of co-controllers of, of personal data. The third category is, is double again, up to 2% um, of annual turnover, and that, that's a heavy reduction from the 5% that was contained in the early draft of the regulation that was leaked um, just before Christmas. Excuse me, is that the smaller of those two or the larger That's quite an interesting point in itself. It's, um, it's not clear. It just says uh, one or the other, not whichever is the greater, whichever is the lesser, which is in itself something of a, of a problem because um, for, for organisations that have very low turnover, um, are they going to be faced with a, a million euro fine? If, I mean, you, you would expect it would be the, the, um, the lesser of, but it, it's, not clear. it's not clear. The Category 3 fines um, cover a, a very broad list of, of breaches. I sort of fairly crudely summarise them here. They can be summarised even, even more crudely by the, the concept of blatant disregard for the regulation. So overall, these, uh, these fines are obviously really quite stringent. And whilst they've been broadly welcomed by supervisory authorities and, and privacy campaigners, the, the draft is, is not without its issue in this, issues in this regard. So for one thing, the level of the fines and how those are calculated. The ICO has, has mentioned specifically that the company turnover measurement is, is quite problematic because obviously turnover isn't the same thing as profit margin, so some organisations could be hit harder than others. There are also some oddities in uh, the fact that member states are, um, are also to set out punitive measures which operate in tandem 
with the Commission's powers, which seems to fly in the face of the, the uniformity that the, that the regulation is, is meant to introduce. Further oddity is the wording of supervisory authority shall impose a fine up to, not is empowered to or may, it shall impose a fine, which presumably means that um, for quite trivial breaches, um, authorities will end up giving quite token fines out that, that really aren't of any significance. So um, just before moving on to documentation, the, the, the principles of the, of the fines um, mechanism introduced by the regulation seem to be uh, all in all that for, for businesses it is potentially a very expensive exercise to ignore the regulation and the very broad extent um, of the obligations which, which if breached can trigger this notification are potentially something of a wake-up call that obviously we'll, we'll see what state the regulation is in if uh, and when it gets to being finally implemented. So moving on to documentation, a great many uh, new obligations in this field. Uh, many of them are in effect really only mandating what has for a long time been good practice under existing data protection legislation. It's worth noting that some of the more onerous obligations um, apply really only to large or large businesses. I'll, I'll come back to that later on. But it does seem that the purpose of these uh, of these obligations is to encourage organisations to crystallise their own thinking on data usage by forcing them to create the documents, to write everything down and thereby to be faced with the gaps in that documentation. The biggest set of obligations on documentation is Article 28. It obliges controllers and processors to uh, maintain documentation of all processing operations under their responsibility. You can see here the, the list of, of prescribed elements in that documentation, and it is pretty extensive. It doesn't just go into who the, um, who the, the data subjects are and what purposes um, processing is made for, but it also go, goes into who the recipients or categories of recipients are, um, retention periods, which previously hasn't been mandated, um, and principally, mechanisms to ensure compliance with the regulation. Now, that is no mean feat, um, particularly if you've gone to the trouble of reading the regulation. There is an awful lot in there, and an awful lot of mechanisms would have to be implemented in order to maintain compliance and then be able to evidence it. This documentation under Article 28 has to be made available to supervisory authorities on request. Now, this presumably paves the way for some form of spot checks, and uh, the cynical among you might think that this would be an easy way for the Commission to uh, earn some nice, easy revenue from those lovely big fines. Nonetheless, there are some very important exemptions, given the, the scope of the administrative burden that this ob obligation will introduce for individuals and for small companies. There are some other documentation obligations outside Article 28, um, touching on policies, joint controllers, third-party processing and impact assessments. And the ICO has looked at all of this and questioned whether it's necessary or, or in fact even helpful to prescribe uh, this level of documentation in such detail. Um, I think I might contest that simply on the basis that there's actually not that many organisations around who've really gone to the trouble of doing all of this thinking and documenting everything. Is it therefore realistic to expect that the organisations will do so in future without some specific regulatory obligation to do so? So um, documentation in summary, and it, it, again, it's really, uh, although it's creating a much larger set of mandatory obligations, it's really only formalising what's been good practice for a, a very long time. Um, but it is worth considering as, as time goes on, the regulation progresses, that it might be worth getting your house in order in, in this regard. So lastly, um, exemptions for small and medium enterprises. These fit into two uh, rather neat categories. Um, there are various references in the regulation to micro, small and medium enterprises. Where these references are made, there, there is a, an accompanying um, power for the Commission to introduce specific measures later on. There are also various uh, references to fewer than 250 employees, and, and where these references turn up, there is a specific exemption within the regulation it itself from particular obligations. So, firstly, micro, small, and medium enterprises, what does this mean? Uh, well, it's defined in uh, the uh, Commission recommendation from 2003. 
it's worth noting that uh, the Commission, when, when issuing this recommendation, stated that it would cover roughly 99% of all enterprises in the EU. So the impact uh, of these measures um, is potentially really very significant. Broadly speaking, the definition is that um, an organisation uh, that employs two, less than two, fewer than 250 people and has an annual turnover of less than 50 million will, uh, will fall within this category. Key question, really, is um, what all this stuff means. Well, now th these are the obligations that um, have the potential for measures to be introduced in this regard. So personal data related to children, standard forms, um, the extent of information that, that um, you provide to data subjects when you collect their data, the extent of policies and measures required to ensure that processing is compliance with the regulation, um, and uh, the necess necessity for uh, impact assessments. Nonetheless, what are these measures meant to do? Um, it is very, very unclear. One would presume that these measures will be in introduced specifically for these um, small companies to give them some leeway, given the administrative bur burden that some of the obligations will, will impose. But it's really not very clear at all. And because some of these obligations are actually really quite, quite severe, um, this does leave, at, at this point, quite a lot of doubt about how some of those more onerous obligations in the regulation are going to apply. Lastly, um, fewer than 250 employees, um, where this comes up. Now, it, it's really very unclear uh, why a different measurement is being used. Um, if the Commission have gone to the trouble of defining it uh, with some sophistication what, what um, micro, small, medium enterprise means, why go for this rather, rather crude 250 employee measure? Now, it applies to, um, it's worth mentioning again, this exempts um, uh, organisations specifically from particular obligations. And these really are some of the, some of the harsher ones. So you don't need to have a representative uh, in the UK if, you, if you're based abroad. Um, you don't need to keep the, the, uh, a lot of the extensive documentation required by Article 28. Um, and you also don't need to have a data protection officer. There's also a get out for some of the fines. So um, these are clearly quite important exemptions simply because of the, the extent of um, the obligations that would other, uh, otherwise impose quite a heavy administrative burden and might act as a, a restriction on, on growth of small businesses. But the fact is that the, these are really, this is really quite a crude tipping point. All in all then, um, there are really quite a few um, new obligations imposed on companies the draft has not been welcomed with open arms in all of its detail, um, often even by privacy regulators, because of, of the sheer extent to which those obligations are being beefed up. Um, nonetheless, it, it maybe does provide an indication of the level of, of um, extension of data protection obligations that businesses will be, will be facing in coming years, um, and therefore an indication of what it might be worth looking at in more detail internally. I'll now pass over to Rich. Um, so I'm going to talk about jurisdiction and consumer rights uh, first on jurisdiction. So Article 3 sets out the jurisdiction of this new regulation, which is split into two parts. Uh, first part, probably all familiar with, is very similar to the jurisdiction under the Data Protection Directive. Talks about uh, processing personal data in the context of activities of an establishment of a controller or processor in the union. So, standard test, we've had it for a while, people know generally what it means, how it applies. I mean, th there is the old criticism that you could be established in the union, but processing activities in relation to activities outside the union, but th 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 there's nothing new there. R Part two of Article three, however, is far, far broader than we've seen in the past. What we have is the processing of personal data, of data subjects residing in the union by a controller not established in the union, where the processing activities are related to, and then the key one here, offering of goods or services to such data subjects. So potentially extremely broad. We've got basically the whole world covered and the European Commission trying to tell any company, wherever it happens to be in the world, if you want to target your services to this 500 million member single harmonized market which we've created for you, this is the cost of doing business. So 
consider, for example, an American company selling software, complying with US data protection law, complying with PCI DSS, safe harbor, if that still exists at the time, no presence in the EU. They, they would have to comply with the data protection regulation. It would all, all apply to them, all the obligations, all the nuances, all of the ambiguities would, would be directly applicable as the Commission attempts it. It seems very aggressive, and the, I think that the sensible context to look at what they're trying to do here is prevent legal barriers from enforcement. I think if the Commission placed a fine on a US company with no establishment in, in Europe, how would they practically enforce that fine? What would it look uh, you know, ambitious in the press if the ICO was trying to enforce fines, getting nowhere, having case thrown out of an American court trying to enforce the fine? I think they would take pragmatic steps at the time, but there wouldn't be a legal barrier. They wouldn't have already stopped themselves from being able to implement that fine. So the, the practical enforcement of this is a future problem, and who knows how it, would, how it would play out, but there wouldn't be a legal restriction on imposing these fines. I mean, the flip side is we've got these broad measures which people can describe to European citizens as saying, here are the standards for data protection. You're being protected from no matter whom in the world, no matter where they're based. However, it's not really got much teeth for enforcement of fines outside of Europe. One interesting aspect of how it could actually be directly applicable, however, is, is the standard warranty in a contract to comply with applicable law. So if you've got that term in a contract, um, then this is an applicable law under almost every definition I've seen, and you would have a breach of warranty if people weren't applying with the, complying with this regulation. And the regulation also goes further and gives data subjects a specific right to enforce under a contract, which they're not a party to, to enforce their rights under this. It also gives consumer rights groups a right to enforce on behalf of those data subjects. So we, we may see applicable law terms in contracts being used to bring in uh, uh, court actions, uh, you know, breaches, uh, that type of thing, but perhaps less so with the fines. And then we've also got to think about this in the global context. There's a lot going on in data protection bills around the world. Um, both India and China are um, have, have statutes on on the bill book about to be coming through. Uh, they, I think, last week uh, the White House put forward a proposal, a, a kind of white paper, which it was asking Congress to consider implementing, which would become voluntary uh, standards for data protection. So there's a lot going on in, in this area and the, the extent to which these regulations, whatever they end up looking like, will be compatible with all these other bills, it's almost certainly unlikely. I mean, we'll see in a moment the amount of fragmentation we've got or are likely to have up here. So consumer rights. And there's a few new pieces of consumer rights which are introduced, uh, proposed under the regulations. First is the, the classic right to be forgotten, which, which has been banded around for a couple of years as a concept. Uh, some people are very much for it, against it. Uh, a lot of concern about what exactly it means. I, I think it does provide a bit of a Rorschach test. You can kind of see it to be what you want it to be. You know, it could be a citizen's healthy, normal right to control its identity, to correct things. We've got that the idea underneath the, uh, the data protection directive at the moment to correct inaccurate data and to see a copy of it. You know, it could be a right to go and delete your data. You, you, know, you shouldn't be storing data about me without my permission, without my consent. It could be, you know, an extension of a right to delete is a right to, to not process my, my data in the context of your reports, uh, pieces you put out, you know, could it extend as far as the press? Certainly processing of personal data, if I, you know, talked about your, uh, you know, household activities and, uh, you know, su such things which you'd normally find in investigative journalism. And then, you know, is it further from there, is there a restriction on free speech? You know, how much would, uh, would it overlap with libel laws and, um, 
you know, other normal restrictions we have on freedom of speech. So let's see what the, the article actually says. I mean, we've got Article 17, which is a right to be forgotten and to erasure. The right of an indiv individual to obtain from the controller the erasure of personal data relating to them and the abstention from further dissemination of such data where one of various conditions arises. And then the key ones, uh, I haven't listed them all, uh, is no longer necessary in relation to the purposes for which it was collected. Makes your, uh, you know, the purpose for your data acquisition, as you state at the time, very relevant. And if the if you originally obtained consent, and that was the what reason your processing was lawful, if they withdraw that consent, and then if you don't comply with the regulation, yes, that's that's somewhat red. Um, so perhaps here we've got very broad controls and um, you know, rights of citizens with easy access to request this just by withdrawing consent or by setting out that you didn't initially set out that the purposes you're currently processing for are still relevant. You know, we've seen some, some instances at the moment of, air quote, viral campaigns to request copies of your data uh, some German citizen set up Europe versus Facebook and you know, sets out exactly how to get this data and assisting people in take, taking control of these rights. And, you know, I think it's, it's quite easy to imagine a hashtag or you know, Twitter campaign, some kind of automated service where you click a button and it, it submits on your behalf the request to delete this data. So there are caveats, there are you know, exemptions to to this right to, to be forgotten and erasure. Um, so we have carve-outs for public interest in relation to public health. Okay, important, but probably won't apply in lots of instances. Historical, statistical, and scientific research, legal data retention obligations, and key is freedom of expression. Freedom of expression is set out in the back, and it's it's basically each member state is to set out its own terms for what it, th it feels is the appropriate freedom of expression balance. Uh, I mean, already in Europe, we've got quite a difference in ideas of what should be free speech. We've got the Pirate Party winning seats in Sweden. Um, UK is known as a destination for libel tourism. Germany has uh, you know, anti-hate speech laws. I think we've already got quite a big difference in, in what should be free and this key balance over how much the right to be forgotten should interplay with free speech, I think we're going to end up with 27 different implementations and balances there. So I think we, we, this, this is losing some of the harmony of the regulation. There's a further obligation to limit future accessibility of this data. So if you made the data public, and they request the deletion of it, you have to take all reasonable steps to inform third parties to erase the links to or copies or replications of that personal data. So this is similar to the uh, litigation which has been playing out in Spain with Google and the Spanish Information Commissioner, where the Spanish Information Commissioner is suggesting Google is, should be taking down links to materials which contain personal data of data subjects who don't uh, consent to that processing. That, that I, last I heard that was still ongoing but this would certainly formalize that obligation and we've got very ambiguous uh, you know, pieces here. What, what are all reasonable in st steps to take down material from the internet? I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it would be very difficult to say you've gone far enough to show that. Data portability is another consumer right which is introduced under the regulation. So this, is, this has been a kind of hot topic in cloud computing for a number of years. Uh, you know, the ability to select your cloud computing provider and change and have free market in that area is very difficult unless you can get your data out. So we've seen some projects such as data portability itself and you know, large operators, Google for example, have kind of data liberation fronts and Google takeouts and you know, many other operators implement this as a you know, as a service to customers to incentivize them to come to come to them. However, it would be made much, a much more uh, formalized right under under the regulation. Uh, the key in data portability is separating the data from the intellectual property rights in and the proprietary special source in in how that data is optimized and the processing involved and the the activities which you wouldn't want to give away for free. 
and the, the, normally larger scale data processing operations, the more nuanced, the more precise the operations, the more of those optimizations might make it harder to extract the data from the actual uh, system itself. Article 18 uh, sets out where data is processed by electronic means and in a structured and commonly used format, then the data subject has a right to obtain the undergoing processing. So this, this would be used perhaps in comparison services, uh, you know, if you're shopping around for credit cards, you know, moneysupermarket.com for example, you upload all your data from your credit cards for the last few years and rather than it gives you APRs and numbers which don't make much sense to you, it just tells you this one would have saved you this much money, this one would have saved you that much money. It allows much more third-party services to use your data if you have it available to to make those comparison services. The key is what, what is this commonly used format? Uh, I, I, I imagine it would be very easy to alter your, your system, alter your processing such that you're not storing things any longer in a commonly used format. Uh, just adding in any change it seems would make would make it a, a unique format um, and and so I, I, I think we'll see more and more of the, you know, the the advertising and people differentiating their services by saying you have data portability but I can imagine it would be easy under the com current proposed definition to circumvent the this obligation by, by adjusting your format and the larger the system, the more likely it is you will have a bespoke solution. Um, I think we're going to head for a coffee break now. Um, yep. A little bit early. We'll pop back in for 10 o'clock where we'll pause now and, uh, and then we'll close off with some organisational issues and things within the business. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Um, for this sort of final main session, we're going to look at some uh, organisational issues. Um, I come at this from perhaps a slightly different perspective from the other speakers because um, I'm an employment lawyer, so I'm sort of looking at this from the focus on uh, the impacts of the new regulation um, on the employer-employee relationship. There's lots of stuff in the regulation you could talk about um, through that particular focus, but I've, I've sort of picked out three in particular um, which caught my interest. Uh, they are um, the requirement to have data protection officers. Uh, changes to the rules around consent um, and um, exporting data outside the EU. Um, pick those because data protection officers are potentially going to be um, an employee in quite a unique position in an organisation. Um, the consent stuff is relevant because for processing a lot of uh, personal data in the HR context at the moment, employers just rely on a generic consent, which probably isn't going to work in future and then exporting data, a lot of the data you see exported um, is HR data. So looking first at um, data protection officers, um, this was something that, that Chris touched on earlier. Um, who's going to have to have them? Um, well, uh, public bodies and any enterprise um, employing 250 or more people is going to have to have a data protection uh, officer an enterprise being an organisation involved in economic activity. Um, who is this data protection officer going to be? Well, first thing to say is it, it can be an employee or someone engaged under what's being described as a contract of service in the regulation. Um, slightly strange term to use to a, a UK lawyer because contract of service is usually just another term for an employee. I suspect what they mean is an independent contractor. Um, I think most organisations will want to go down the route of having an employee rather than a contractor in this role um, because as we'll see in a minute um, there's a limit on how much you're supposed to control what the data protection officer does. They're supposed to be a sort of fairly autonomous independent person um, within the organisation and to my mind having someone who's an employee means you should have someone who has a bit more loyalty to the organisation and a bit more buy into the organisation's own values and challenges. The person you use is supposed to be um, someone who's got suitable professional qualities and knowledge of data protection law and an ability to carry out the designated tasks. Um, they can have other duties in addition to their data protection duties, which is probably going to be good news for their sanity, um, but those duties are, can't conflict with their duties as a data protection officer. Um, period of, uh, of appointment has got to be two years minimum, um, no maximum. 
And then this is the really interesting bit from my perspective. Um, they're going to get this protection against dismissal. And the regulation says they can only be dismissed if they no longer fulfil the conditions uh, for performance of their duties. Um, what does that mean in practice? So this is sort of going to be quite a new concept, I think, in, in UK law. We do have this idea that people carrying out certain roles um, get extra protection against dismissal. So, for example, if you have someone who's a trade union rep or a health and safety rep and they're dismissed because of carrying out their functions or trying to carry out their functions, they can bring a, an unfair dismissal claim and, and, and say, we've, I've been automatically unfairly dismissed, so it's easier for them to claim compensation. Um, but it seems to me this wording in the regulation actually goes a little bit further than that because it's just saying you can't dismiss them unless they can no longer carry out their duties. So potentially you're going to have this category of person that's going to be very hard to get rid of, um, which I think is going to raise some interesting issues if, for example, they are not performing the other part of their job. For example, you choose to have your compliance officer do, um, do this role and they're not performing their other compliance duties. Can you get rid of them? Um, if they're doing their data protection part of their job um, perfectly adequately on a, on a strict reading of the regulation, um, arguably not. Um, so I think that's going to be quite an interesting issue as to when it's actually you can get rid of your data protection officer. Flowing on from that is the sort of question of what's the reach of the data protection officer going to be? What, what are they going to be um, able to and obliged to do? Well, you have to give the name of the data protection officer to the information commissioner, and then they are the point of contact for um, data subjects if they've got any uh, data protection queries. Mm -hmm. And you have to involve them in all data protection issues in a proper and timely manner. And they are supposed to be allowed to perform their tasks independently and not receive any instructions as to how they exercise their function. So there's going to be this slightly odd person that you're paying for, and is sitting within your organisation and you can't sack very easily, um, who's, who's almost acting in a kind of regulatory capacity on behalf of, of the regulator. Um, their duties are going to be um, sort of education and compliance. Um, so informing and advising the organisation um, of what their duties are um, from a data protection perspective. Um, and monitoring and implementation of the organisation's own policies and of compliance with the regulation and of their notification um, obligations and communication obligations. Um, so is all of this a good idea? Um, I have to say from my perspective it, it doesn't seem like a, a particularly a good idea, it seems like an overly prescriptive approach to me which is it's partly I think a re reflection of the fact that the regulation um, is a, uh, a creation of, of the EU where there is much more of um, a tendency to have detailed prescriptive rules. Um, but it, from a UK perspective, I think it would work better to say these are the rules you have to comply with. You work out how you go, go about complying with them rather than you have to appoint this person to help you comply. Um, that's a view that's echoed by the Information Commissioner and his, his response to the regulation. Um, and he sort of makes the point as well, actually, if you're going to have someone in this role, probably better to have someone who's, for example, chief privacy officer, sits on the board, has the opportunity to influence um, the, the company's direction in relation to data protection. Um, given that you've got to have someone in this role, my own view is that um, it's probably going to be sensible to have someone who's already in a compliance type of role who bolts this onto their function, um, who will have some understanding of compliance and the need to sort of balance um, compliance with an organisation's commercial objectives. Um, the other sort of comment that the Information Commissioner makes is, is in relation to the 250 employee threshold, again something that Chris touched on, um, which seemed like a bit of an arbitrary threshold. You could have an organisation with 251 employees, let's say a manufacturing company, which probably isn't processing a lot of personal data, um, but would be caught by this requirement. Or you could, on the other side of the fence, have an organisation with relatively small number of employees but is in direct marketing and therefore processing an awful lot of personal data but wouldn't be caught. So the next area which I think is going to have a particular impact um, is in relation to consent and standards of consent. Um, as things stand at the moment, um, if you want to demonstrate that you're processing personal data in a lawful way, 
a lot of people will rely on consent um, as justification for doing that, particularly in the context I see, the HR context, where you have a generic, fairly wide consent to process your personal data in the employment contract. Um, the regulation is going to make it much more difficult to, to do that, to rely on consent as a justification for processing your personal data. What it says um, to start off with is consent must be freely given, uh, specific, informed and must always be explicit. So I guess the first thing to say on that is that's the, going to be the end of two-tier consent. What we have at the moment is um, if you are relying on consent for processing of ordinary personal data, it just has to be, quotes, consent. If you want to rely on consent for processing of sensitive personal data, the consent has to be explicit. Uh, sensitive personal data is um, data about racial or ethnic origins, um, about health, political opinions, uh, criminal record, union membership, that kind of thing. Um, but the regulation will do away with this two-tier consent and say all consent is going to have to be um, explicit. The burden of proof to demonstrate that this consent is going to have to be on the data controller. There's going to be a right to withdraw consent. Um, and most significantly, um, the regulation says you can't rely on consent where there's a significant um, imbalance between the data subjects and the controller. Which my immediate reaction reading that is, well, often there will be because you'll have an employer on one side and an employee on the other side, or a large commercial organisation on one side and a consumer on the other side. Um, and certainly in the HR context, um, the indication is very much that you won't be able to rely on consent um, at all, potentially, or very rarely, um, to justify processing. Um, the preamble to the regulation says... Um, that there is a situation of dependence in the employee-employee relationship and therefore suggests there's a very strong presumption you're not going to be able to rely on consent. Um, is that a logical, sensible approach? Again, my view is it's kind of overly rigid, overly prescriptive. Um, in practice, employees will often want their data to be processed. Give a simple example, they'll, they'll want their bank details to be um, used by the employer so the employer can pay them or they might want to give details of their next of kinsley organization and would very willingly um, and knowingly consent um, to it so it seems to be overly rigid to me to say employees consent is never never valid there's also a bit of a consistency point in the sense that the regulation is replete with references to consent as a justification for doing x y and z for um, transferring data outside the EU or for processing data in all sorts of circumstances. And what the regulation is also saying, on the one hand it's, it's giving and the other hand it's taking away, saying there's all these references to consent but you can't really use them where there is an, an imbalance uh, of power. What that means in practice is wherever this imbalance exists, and particularly in the HR context, you're going to have to rely on other justifications um, for your consent. Um, which might be compliance with the legal obligation um, for the legitimate interests of the uh, of the data controller. For example, um, if the data controller wants to monitor performance, deal with disciplinary and grievance issues in the HR context. But um, there are a few possible justifications where you're looking at special categories of data, which is uh, broadly akin to sensitive personal data that we've got at the moment. Um, so again, it's stuff like information about someone's ethnic origin, about their health, their religious beliefs, and so on. Where, um, for example, the legitimate interest justification isn't allowable. Um, again, I think that's not a very helpful distinction to be making. Um, two reasons. Firstly, it's a bit of an arbitrary distinction to say that all health information, for example, um, falls into this special category, whereas um, all various other information never falls into it. So, for example, if I call in sick and say I've got the flu, that's a special category of data, but on an ordinary sense of the word, not, not very sensitive information. Um, whereas details of my salary, for example, which I might be uh, quite concerned to keep private, isn't protected. Second thing to say is that in reality, these types of information are always going to be bound up amongst each other. Again, if an employer is dealing with a, a disciplinary issue, Quite often you'll say, well, actually, the reason this issue has arisen is because I've been stressed, the employee will say, or I haven't been performing because I've been sick. So in, you're going to be dealing with a mix of ordinary information and special categories of information. 
Um, so in reality, you're often going to be in the, in the situation where you're going to have to rely on the, the second set of um, justifications for processing. In practical terms, I think one thing uh, organisations should be looking at then is their data flows. Looking where data comes in, looking where it goes out, and looking at how you're going to justify processing um, in any particular situation. And I put an example of, sort of typical HL data flows on the slide. Um, the last thing I just wanted to touch on for a couple of minutes before we wrap up is exporting data from the EU. Um, the presumption under the regulation is still that you can't transfer data outside the EU. Um, you can only do it if you can bring yourself within one of the sort of categories mentioned on the slide. So if it's the countries approved by the EU, um, it's still a relatively small number of countries that have been approved by the Commission for these purposes. And in population terms, we're not talking a large part of the world. Um, some of the countries on the list, for example, Fair Islands, Guernsey, Jersey, Andorra, Isle of Man. So that's not going to help you on a lot of occasions. Um, we do now have sort of formal recognition that, that binding corporate rules um, can provide a basis for exporting data outside the EU, and we'll look at that in a minute. Um, and pursuant to standards, contractual uh, clauses or approved contractual clauses, whether those are clauses adopted by the Commission or by a supervisory authority like the Information Commissioner or approved by a supervisory authority. Um, and the regulation has a mechanism whereby supervisory authorities are effectively supposed to communicate to each other about uh, contractual clauses they're going to approve so there is consistency across the EU. Um, a little bit of information on the slide about what, um, what requirements you have to satisfy for binding corporate rules. Effectively, that it binds every member of the group that the EU-based members are liable for the actions of the non-EU-based members um, and certain information that's, that's given to uh, data subjects um, about their rights under the Data Protection Act, uh, under the legislation, um, about what information is being exported and why and what's going to be uh, done with it. Um, and lastly, there are a few other um, narrow um, exceptions allowed. Um, for example, consent provided the data subject is informed of the risks in relation to their data. They're remembering the difficulties of relying on consent in any particular situation. Um, if it's necessary for the performance of a contract between the data subject and the, the controller, or if it's in the, their interests, um, or if it's necessary for the purposes of the legitimate interest pursued by the data controller or the or the processor, quotes which cannot be qualified as frequent or massive. Um, I don't know if anyone here knows what that means, frequent or massive. Um, not a phrase I've seen in a lot of legislation. Um, it's like um, the uh, Commission suddenly got a teenager involved in the drafting or something, I don't know. Um, not particularly clear what that means, not, not very helpful. Um, again, is this approach um, to exporting data, it's overly prescriptive. Um, I, again, I would argue, yes, exporting of data is, is a fact of life and it seems to me a more generic approach would be a little bit more sensible um, where the data controller retains some responsibility but then is in a position to assess the risks itself. I think we're just going to wrap up in the next sort of five, ten minutes um, with some parting thoughts from each of us. So uh, we've kind of rattled through, believe me, not everything that's in the regulation. Um, hopefully picking out some key points, as we said at the start, uh, of relevance to, to businesses, both in dealing with our customers and, and also internally. Um, from those presentations, we had, I think, some, some key takeaways, Chris. Yeah, so firstly, the, um, the, the for corporates, the, the new obligations really formalise what, what is already good or best practice in a lot of instances. Um, there are some obviously fairly scary fines, some sharp teeth that the uh, that the Commission has developed for itself. Um, and one thing to be particularly aware of in, in future is is this um, slightly arbitrary 250 employee tipping point, because that will suddenly um, increase the scope of your obligations, particularly on a day-to-day -day administrative level. 
we were just discussing in a coffee break with one of the people in the room um, whether or not we'd see a string of uh, 249 person companies with intergroup transfer agreements being set up as a as a more effective means of uh, ensuring data protection within the organisation rather than complying with the full requirements of the regulation. Um, I'm sure there'll be some creative thinking coming in some of that. Um, Rich? Um, yeah, I mean, the jurisdiction's likely to be expanded, the, or attempted to be expanded, the extent to which the fines will be enforceable, we'll see. But it, it, the old idea of is the equipment in the European Union there seems to be more ambitious. Uh, it's not equipment based, it's where is the data subject based. Um, it seems there may be in the future some, some efforts to uh, enshrine this, this right to be forgotten. So if systems are being bought and implemented, the ability to separate out individual users and to say that where data is commingled, you either it is no longer personal data or it's can be actually unentwined could become quite valuable to build that at the implementation stage rather than worry about it in a couple of years' time. Similarly, uh, data portability is likely to be more of an issue. So thinking about systems which either the data can be extracted without giving out valuable IPR or you're willing to, to, to stand up and say, no, this is a uh, unique file structure and, and we can't give you this I think on those, on the, on the jurisdiction point, there's a real, I think, a sense of uh, this is Europe. Again, you come back to the rationales behind all these changes, kind of trying to create some economic benefit from these changes, and trying to suggest that you know, Europe is a, a global marketplace and that there's a price of entry and a price to play in Europe. Um, much, I think, in the way that maybe we've seen some US legislation having extraterritorial effect, Europe's maybe taken that idea and, and run with it. Um, one can't help but think about the uh, unpaid parking fines of the US Embassy in London as perhaps uh, very small analogies to how effective it's going to be um, for UK or European regulators to try and enforce any remedies uh, in the States or anywhere else, but certainly there's a, there's a drive to take that on. Um, on the, the right to be forgotten, um, this is there's a, the phrase that I heard used last week about this is a political capital. Um, it, it's been a kind of flag that's been waved widely by Vivian Redding, um, the Justice Commissioner, I think to give a lot of attention to these changes. Um, at the same time, as we've heard already from Rich and Chris, uh, the regulator in the UK, the ICO, has got some other views, and this is one of the places where they've been most vocal. Um, they have effectively said it's a great idea, but it's entirely unenforceable. I don't think you should be offering consumers remedies that businesses can never enforce. Um, there's quite a polarity on that point. Uh, and we'll talk in a moment about the, where this is going, but this is one of the areas where I'd expect to see change again. Um, just a couple of thoughts from me. First, um, to repeat something I was saying in um, a few minutes ago, the need to think about how you're going to um, demonstrate the processing of data is lawful if you're not going to be able to rely on consent, which I think is um, is going to be a real issue, and the need therefore to look at data flows and to consider actually that the issue kind of data leakage. Um, I think there's been a tendency historically for organisations to say we've got a generic consent, we've got the data, once the data is in the organisation it goes where it goes. If you're not going to be able to rely on a generic consent, you're going to rely on something else like the legitimate interests. I think you're going to have to be a lot more careful about where the data goes and, and keeping the data for the purpose for which um, it, it was brought in in the, in the first place. So looking at data flows, thinking about policies for specific areas um, to back that up. I mean, one area where I've seen organisations already having some problems is in recruitment, where they get quite a lot of um, sensitive personal data in. Um, and then it has a bit of a tendency to leak out around an organisation at the moment not really causing legal problems, causing sort of more embarrassment issues, but um, that could change in future. Um, and then the second thing, I think this is an interesting step in the sort of battleground over what I would call employee privacy. Um, we've had a lot of case law in the past couple of years looking at the extent to which an employer can be interested in what an employee does in a private capacity 
um, and how much they can take action against employees. So we've had cases where employees have been dismissed because of what they've said on Facebook um, or because of private, even because of private emails they sent. Um, and the UK um, courts and tribunals have generally taken quite a pragmatic approach and said, if in effect, if there's damage to the employer, they've got some, some guidance for employees and they've taken a proportionate approach, um, they can justify dismissal. Um, I think the regulation, when it comes into force, is potentially going to tip the balance back towards employers a little bit, partly because of this issue um, around consent, um, partly because of the requirement to notify employees, um, uh, data subjects generally, uh, breaches, um, and partly something else we haven't touched on. It looks like the regulation is going to allow um, claims and in individuals to bring claims where they haven't suffered financial loss but but just distress or injury to feelings which is a change from the current position so that I suspect may encourage more um, claims in the future. So picking up on Chris's last point and, and saying that it looks like um, what we talked about today is uh, where the framework for data protection for Europe for the next decade uh, is now. Um, we'll share with you uh, part of the materials uh, that we'll send out after the event, our comparison of what was leaked in December and what was published in January. Um, the very obvious example of change there was the drop from 5% um, of global revenue potentially as a fine to two, but th there are other material changes. I, I think the point here is that the game is afoot, it's not finished. Um, I was in a meeting last week with the, the Deputy Information Commissioner was um, making some points, some of which have been mentioned today. Uh, his comment around the data protection officer regime was that um, you know there might not be a need for us to wholly employ Germany's routines and maybe for something that's more reflective of a wider Europe. I'm not sure if he made that comment in a European room. He made it very much in a UK audience. Um, the language he's couched is uh, the commissioner's couched the response in a fortnight ago is that there are parts for further consideration. Um, they clearly believe that there are parts for quite considerable further consideration. Um, uh, you know, I think we're at a place now where we've got two years before we get to the end of this process. A lot of what we've talked about will happen, um, but there will be changes between now and then. Um, if nothing else, you're probably now informed of the, of the, the, the dialogue uh, rather than where the end point is. And the second point that I mentioned at the very start to take away is that um, even when we get to the final point on this, the new regulation is not going to be everything. Uh, there's going to be a separate directive on use of data for other means, particularly around um, justice uh, and the ends of justice. Um, there's also, uh, for no real reason, we're not rolling in the e-privacy directive into this new regulation. So the changes that many organizations will be facing now, thinking about cookies and cookie use um, that's been brought into the e-privacy directive, hasn't been rolled up or and isn't proposed to be rolled up into the regulation. I'm not quite sure why. Um, so even if we get to this harmonized um, regulation, hopefully providing one flavor of ice cream, um, there's still going to be really beating that analogy to death, uh, that image to death. There's going to be different topics um, and there's going to be different sites. Uh, this isn't going to be the answer that, that perhaps has been presented as just now. So um, hopefully we've given you a bit of a, an introduction if you weren't familiar with the topic in a bit more depth if you were. Um, we will pause now and thank you all for your attention. Um, if you have any questions for us, uh, we're happy to take them. If you want to ask them <coughs> once people have left, we'll be around for a bit. Um, and if you have to go, do please feel free to go now. Otherwise, thank you very much. Do we have any questions? Do we have any open questions? <laughs> Yes? Is there any question for uh, implementation date? Uh, no. 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 The, uh, sort of two years is the running the running rate, and it, it kind of extends every time I read about it. No, there's not. There isn't a drop dead date. I think from the moment it passes, they're talking about a lot of it kicks in two years after it's set. You can obviously change that. But there's some, there's some obligations which all the member states have from when the regulation is passed that they have to do before the implementation. So each member state would have to submit to the European Commission what its freedom of, of expression laws are. You know, I think it would take two years to write down what your freedom of expression laws are, but there's a lot of 
process from when it's actually passed through to when it would start, even once it is agreed. Yes. Safe harbor? Yeah, good question. Um, I think the future safe harbor is undecided. Um, what we have got clarity on is that uh, in addition to states being classed as adequate protectors of personal data in the way that we heard here, why not this? Um, uh, subdivisions within um, nation states will be, so I guess that means certain states of the United States, for example, um, can provide uh, sufficient protection under their own laws. Um, that, it, it, that's an extension as to whether or not Safe Harbor dies as a result of that extension. I, I don't think no. we have a final answer on yet. Yeah. Where they want to try and get away from is schemes of self-certification and move towards legislative recognition. But you know, again, how how can the EU make that happen out of the territory? If there are no more open questions again, thanks everyone and uh, maybe we'll see you in the twenty eighth. Thank you.